The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen May, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we, we are, are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And um, uh, we're coming to you this week from Leclerc, which is empty as we speak, uh, which is fine. It's quiet, but, you know, you prefer a little bit of... You won't hear any clinking or we have the whole of the back section to ourselves. So it's interesting. I was in a, in a Crown the other day and the barman was having a sort of a pint of Guinness just to calm my nerves before an AGM and the, the barman said... Oh, a pint of Guinness to calm your nerves? Well, I just... <laughs> I, I wanted to tell James Packer I'd had a, had a beer at one of his bars or something. So um, anyway, but... Uh, and the barman said, it's absolutely crazy every night of the week. So Melbourne CBD in the evenings is back because um, of all the events are back, but it's still pretty quiet during the day. So the CBD as a business centre is struggling, but the CBD as a entertainment precinct is booming. I was at ANZ. I was at, uh, at ANZ for dinner on Tuesday night with the CEO and his team, with a bunch of media people, and uh, the CEO Shane Elliott proudly announced to the table. Uh, that uh, they were ecstatic because 50% of their staff had come into the office that day. <laughs> so that was the highest level of staff attendance since the beginning of the pandemic. Wow, 50%. 50%. And they yeah, were, yeah. They were delighted that half the staff had come into the office. Well, they should tell them to come in more often. I can't believe how No, the but they don't want to tell them because they're afraid of losing them. Yeah, so everyone – and so uh, they don't think that um, – uh, attendance in offices is going to be much more than 50%. Yeah, I think that's where it's going to settle. And, it's it's uh, going to settle around that. And, and Mondays and Fridays are the least. So that means CBDs are buggered, really. Well, they're they're half buggered, if I can... Yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, the office, CBD office won't be as robust for a while, but stuff will come in. You know, I think it's, uh, it's never going to die. You know, it's still going to be. And it's more and more vibrant from an entertainment point of view, residen- so residential. Yeah, I think... You're, you're in the Shilby Wright back. camp. You're, you're in the... I'm in the Shilby Wright camp. That's right. <laughs> and, and we're booming in Manningham because all the people who work from home, they spend their money locally in the suburbs with us. So in the suburbs, we like work from home. Oh, so you've got a conflict of interest. Conflict of interest, yeah, because there's no offices in you're Manningham compl- to go and work at. Everyone leaves. Conflicted. Goes I'm not to gonna, Burundara or the city. I'm not going to listen to you on the subject all right. anymore. Now, I was going to say, last time I was at an ANZ function, Mike Smith was the CEO, and he was drinking special $200 Vas Felix wine, and the rest of us were on some $30. So Is that he right? had his own He had his wine. own wine. Yes, $200 oh, Vas Felix. Home's a court family. And I thought, that's... That's too entitled. Oh, that's not a good anecdote. Well, Shane Elliott didn't do that. On no, Tuesday he's a night. good modest. He's a good fiscal, you know, responsible, non-indulgent so I asked him, CEO. So you'll CEO. enjoy this. I, I, asked, I asked him what does he think of Joe Aston, who's <laughs> 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 been, been writing terribly nasty yeah, stuff it's about It's been very, Shane. very nasty. Very nasty. Not even in the top 100 for targets, but still incredibly nasty, such is Joe's range. So, Mr Elliott, 
uh, claimed not to read it. <laughs> I think I, I think Probably that's rubbish. That. Rubbish. Yes. Yes. My wife. And then he said, he said, oh, some it. people show it to me sometimes. He's terribly mean. Yes. He says well, he is terribly mean. <laughs> he's terribly mean. I think mean. he's a bit unfair on on uh, on many people, but particularly uh, yeah, uh, Elliot's. You know, yeah, but look, nice if I may guy, say, so. if I may say, Stephen, Joe Aston's picked up the Stephen Main mantle. I mean, this is being mean to everyone. Yeah, that was your, that used to be your uh, task in life, your mission, if I may put it that way. <laughs> he and, does uh, it a lot more effectively than I ever did it, <laughs> and he takes, uh, he takes a lot. He he goes a lot harder on a lot more people than I ever did. I've got we're, a few we're talking for those who favourites and stuff. For those who aren't Murdoch's familiar with Joe, Packers, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Joe Aston, he's the rear William window columnist, or one of the rear window columnists in the Financial Review. Uh, anyway, listen, we move, need to move along. We haven't uh, discussed our topics that we have listed today. One of which is Elon Musk uh, reinstating his Twitter offer of fifty four dollars mm. twenty per share, or US, or sixty seven dollars sixty seven mm. billion dollars Australian for Twitter having dropped it in April. It's a good day for American capitalism. The rule of law prevails. If you enter into a contract with your eyes open, you must honour that contract. So Elon had a few embarrassing texts dragged out in the public arena. A few billionaire mates no doubt complained about their private texts being dragged through the courts. And he folded, as he should have, and he's now going to spend $68 billion Australian for cash, cash uh, buying Twitter. <laughs> there you go. I don't have much to say about it. I mean, uh, um, Twitter, they talk about it as the public square and fair enough. Um, and we'll get on to public squares in a moment. But um, uh, I'm, to be honest, I'm a bit uneasy about it being owned by a billionaire. Oh, I think it's – I'm very nervous. I mean, he will bring Trump back. I suspect he'll introduce subscriptions. That's the obvious way to monetize Twitter. Anyone who's got more than 10,000 followers has to start paying subscriptions. So you start charging corporates. I couldn't survive as a journalist without Twitter. So if he suddenly started charging 1000 bucks a year for my 43,000 followers, I would pay it because that's, it's, my, you know, it's my sort of most important publishing platform. So I think that's the obvious way to monetize it and that's what, probably what he'll do. Yeah. Well, there you are. Mm. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's a very ordinary bloke. I mean, fancy backing Putin this week, this stupid propaganda stuff he's been pushing Putin's line on Twitter. He's just irresponsible and mad. He just needs to shut up for a while and run his businesses. Well, that doesn't seem likely. He doesn't seem to be able to shut no. up. I love the way also those texts showed – my favourite text was, was Larry Allison, the 78-year-old former executive chair of uh, Oracle. He sent a text offering a billion – <laughs> he sends a text, say, hi, Elon, count me in for a billion when you take <laughs> Twitter private. I mean, he's been on the Tesla board. He's a mate of Musk's. But what sort of a billionaire sends a text to another billionaire just offering a billion dollars just like that? Yeah. Hilarious. Um, anyway, closer to home. Closer to home, Andrew Thorburn and Essendon. Now, uh, I'm a long-time Essendon member and supporter uh, and have been dismayed by the carryings on. God. Um, so do you think that Essendon should have uh, appointed Andrew Thorburn? No. Well, I mean, there's so many mistakes here. The first one of many was um, appointing Thorburn to interview prospective CEOs. I don't think he was the right choice for that. And then <clears throat> demonstrating he wasn't the right choice for that, he then had a conflict of interest and put his hand up for the job that it, where he was meant to be the recruiter. 
and he knew what other candidates were saying about what Essendon needs to do and presumably he's just borrowed some of that and then <laughs> interviewed by the board and, and made a compelling case and also ran down all the other candidates who he'd interviewed and said, they're all terrible, look at me. So he should not have been allowed to do that, let alone they should have just sacked him as the recruiter, appointed someone else to a recruiter and said, see you later, mate, you don't know how to do business. This is not, this is not cricket, let alone football. So, um, but then having offered him the job, I actually think that Essendon probably, it was a bit unfair that they sacked him because he's never said anything homophobic that I've seen. You know, people in his church might have said some stuff, but he personally has got a reasonable record on that stuff. So what are we going to do next? Sack sack King Charles? Because, you know, he's just the chairman of an Anglican church. He's got some quirky views. But Prince Charles is ultimately the king of Australia and Anglican church is, you know, the number one religion here with our king. What are we going to do next? Sack the king because some people in the Anglican church say homophobic things? I don't know. What do you think? I think the Essendon board panicked. Um, I agree with you. They probably panicked unwisely and shouldn't have sacked him so quickly, but they've decided to move on. They just said you can't be both. Can't be chair of both or can't be CEO and chair of the church. So, And he decided to choose the, the church and to make a bit of a um, religious discrimination yeah. thing out of it, uh, which naturally News Corp has jumped all over. Yes, so News Corp's so written that onto their 40th article already. It's uh, you know, hours every night on Sky News, uh, you know, religious freedom and blah, blah, blah. So maybe he should suddenly pop up as a as a candidate for the Liberals in the Victorian election and, and present himself as the next treasurer of Victoria. I don't know whether he's trying to build a profile for some broader political role. But I would have thought, given a choice of uh, chairing a church not-for-profit or being CEO of a footy club, you'd say, like anyone who takes a new job, you ditch a couple of your old jobs so you can take the new job. So why he didn't say, I'll move on from the church and I'll, I really want to be the CEO, I think is staggering when given that choice. Yeah, but he obviously was offended, I would say, and he, he's decided he didn't want to be a part of an organisation that... Mm. Uh, that offers him that sort of choice. And he probably stared them down and and thought they won't dare sack me after one day. And David Barham, the hard-charging president of the Bombers, who thought it was absolutely fine to knock off the former global chairman of PwC, Paul Brasher, 5-4 in a presidential coup back in August. Well, I I thought that was okay too. Well, Brash is Personally, probably a bit slow. But, but I think, you know, he wasn't particularly... Yeah. Barham's had 20 years um, in a sort of AFL broadcasting, you know, running Channel 10. Those commercial TV guys are pretty brutal. You know, they're dealing with big yeah, players, yeah, course, they're dealing right. with the AFL, dealing with billionaires. Yeah, yeah. So he's grown up in that culture and he's a brawler and, you know, he's happy to sack former bank CEOs and knock I mean, off look, PwC it, chairs. And this the good news in all this is that it doesn't really matter who's CEO of a football club. I mean, they're just... Uh, you can you can come up with, um, you know, names of CEOs have been important, like Cook at Geelong yeah. and so on. But um, you know, on the whole, they're pretty. It's a pretty much an administrative role, mm. balancing the books, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. The president's more important, um, and the coach. It's the president. Yeah, and the coach. The president and coach are the top uh, two. Uh, the coach uh, is the most important. Then and the, the coach reports the, to the president, not the, the CEO. List, and the list manager is also very important, and the football manager. They're the big three, and then the president. So. But look, I love their governance model too. So if you want to run for the board of the Bombers, and I've, I've asked questions at two Essendon AGMs over the years, getting stuck into them over their pokies. So it's in December. So if you want to nominate, they've got a really weird constitution where six directors are directly elected by the members. 
and four are appointed by the approval of at least two-thirds of the other directors. So that is an entrenchment mechanism to stop a full cheer squad takeover at one AGM. So they can the, the incumbents can sort of add four new directors who they like. Who is that are an mates. unusual model? Yes, because it should just be, you know, th- three by three. It should be nine directors, three of them are up each year, like a typical public company. But ideally it should be like the, the US and UK companies where all directors are up every year. So you can throw the lot out if you want. So this is an entrenchment model. Um, and uh, there could be a fight. And Barham, the president, is not up this year. He's up next year. So if people want to get rid of Barham, and people are saying that Andrew Muir, who's the good guy's billionaire, he should replace him. But if they want to sack him from the board, they have to remove him at an EGM because he's not up at the AGM because he's got a three-year term. But uh, Barham himself has said he's only, he's only going to be temporary. Yeah. Well, he's, so he he's got so much blood on his hands that he, he... Blood on his hands? He, well, you know, the coach... Former president, now the new CEO. I mean, how many? <laughs> he's dripping and in he's, blood. And he's winning 5 4. Then he won't knock Kevin Sheedy off, even though Sheedy came out and bagged him publicly and said, I voted for James Hurd to be coach. I mean, Sheedy should be sacked instantly. Of course. But because he was in the column of five votes for the coup, the presidential coup in August, the, the president's not telling him to resign like he's told the CEO to resign. So, oh, anyway, it's a good governance. I, well, I wondered, I've seen jo- Josh Bornstein, the, the uh, employment lawyer, coming out and saying that uh, Thorburn's got a case for um, suing Essendon for a million bucks. Well, he does. And I wonder whether... But he resigned, didn't he? Uh, didn't he resign? No, but he was forced to make the choice. He made, so his, he made his 15 million. He was forced to make the choice. I'm just saying that I wonder, I wonder whether Bornstein will be able to persuade well, maybe, uh, but he's also, to go also for acting for Wayne Carey, uh, going crown over white substance issues. So, yeah, well, that's know, all right. Josh, Josh, you know. I, mean, well, it was I, I like but, Josh. But, but it was only crushed up ibuprofen. Well, that's right. So, yeah, that's it right. Was so, not, it was not so, cocaine. I correct. Mean, so Josh has got another victim in, uh, in <laughs> Wayne Carey, <laughs> cancel culture victim. They're all getting cancelled and Josh has become the number one uh, representative for those who have been cancelled, it seems, in the footy space. Well, Josh better watch out. He'll get cancelled himself. That's right. Now, a couple of AGMs of note. I did enjoy going to the ASX AGM uh, last week. And Ken Henry, right, former Secretary, Treasury Secretary, he was the NAB chair who was too arrogant at the Royal Commission and had to resign, basically. He was, in fact, Andrew Thorburn's chair. Yeah, correct. He was Andrew (laughs) Thorburn's chair. And And the two of them them were marched out. Yes, correct. Immediately as soon as the final... For arrogant performances in front of the... As soon as the final report of the... the uh, the Royal Commissioners, yes. As soon as Haynes' final report hit the decks, out they went. Anyway, carry on. On on his last day as a public company director, so he'd done nine years on the ASX board and he was retiring at the AGM last week. Or two weeks ago. So I said, and ASX has had issues with this chess replacement project, you know, 216 million, four delays, you know, it's been a disaster. There was a pro, there was a 30% strike on the REM because they were still paying bonuses despite the chess stuff-ups. So I said, a oh, question for Ken Henry, you've been on the board for nine years through the whole life of the chess project, you know, can you please give your personal reflections on what went wrong and how it was handled from a board point of view? Anyway, the chair, Roach, gives a few comments and then passes to Ken who says, I think you've answered it perfectly adequately, Chair, and I have nothing further to add. And I thought, what an arrogant way to go. You're up, you know, you're going out from the board, you've been asked a specific question and you're just basically saying, Give, here's the two-fingered salute, I'm just not, I say no comment. I mean, for me that was very arrogant and disappointing. And I also note that for his entire time on the board, 
ASX has been paying the Labor and Liberal Party more than $100,000 a year in cash for access arrangements. $100,000 each to each, to yeah. each of them. Each. Right. Well, the at, least highest level. at least they're equally yeah, equalising Yeah, but it. why are they discriminating against the Greens? Oh, the Greens? Or the National Party. What have the National Party ever done to Ken to get no money out of the ASX? Clive Palmer's getting no money. Why are you just looking after the coals and woolies of politics? <laughs> and I just think it's appalling that that the ASX was given legislative approval to become this privatised monopoly listed on itself when Ken was in Treasury and back in the day, because, you know, 1997, uh, Costello Howard. And then, you know, he joins the board, he makes $2 million and he, while he's on the board, they give $2 million back to the duopoly, the political duopoly, which is bad governance. And then you ask him a question on his last day and he just doesn't even give you an answer. So, anyway, apart from that, he's a great bloke. <laughs> that was almost Joe Aston like wasn't it? It was a bit mean, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. Um, uh, any coming up that you that we should keep an eye on? Yeah, look. The, the, what I are mean, you what I, are you getting ready for? What are you limbering up for? Well, Stephen? I mean, C- CBA and CSL clashing next Wednesday. CBA nine thirty at the G. CSL uh, ten a.m. at Jeff's shed. Um, disappointingly, CBA is not a, a hybrid, so you can't ask questions from home, whereas CSL initially wasn't going to do questions from home, but then after a bit of pressure, they've come through with a, yes, we'll take well, you'll have to just get into the. Uh, you'll have to get into the MCG, man. Correct. So I go to the MCG and I lob questions from the laptop at CSL from CBA. That's oh, I see. They're at the same time, are they? Yeah, it's a classic. And I did say to James Pack, actually, I said, back in the day, in the early 2000s... Here he goes, name-dropping... You and Murdoch <laughs> had your AGM on the same day in different cities two or three years in a row. Like, you know, it was always Adelaide, Rupert, Sydney, Packer, you know. So someone who was picking on billionaires, it made it very difficult. Anyway, James has said, was never deliberate, know nothing about it, not true, just a coincidence. Or someone else. All three the years in a row, what like, rubbish. Maybe two years in a two row. Two years in a row. But yeah, I've always, you know, nine and seven in recent years have been having their AGMs at the same time in Sydney. So I do, I do get suspicious of this uh, clashing tactic. But uh, AGL will be the most important one of the season, November 15. Cannon Brooks putting up four candidates when he only owns 11% of the company. Very cheeky attempted control move by the billionaire. And he's motivated by climate and doesn't care if his 11% goes to zero. The other 89% of the shareholders are actually a bit concerned about the shares going badly. So he doesn't have the same interest as the other shareholders. His primary interest is carbon well, emissions. you've got to wonder what the other shareholders are doing in AGL if they're worried about their shares going to zero. Crikey, I mean, yes. this is not... <coughs> this is a, a coal company in the land of the non-coal, really. Yes. So, uh, yeah. And the other one is that News Corp's just released its notice of meeting this morning. Uh, so it's a fully virtual AGM on uh, November 15, same day as, uh, but it's, it's November 16, 1am our time. And we finally got Rupert's pay for the year. So as the executive chairman of News Corp, he was paid $6.47 million. And the 91-year-old's a bit of a double dipper, you see, because as the executive chairman of Fox Corp, he got $15.4 million. So he's the only one I know who gets paid multi-million salaries by two companies to be executive chairman of two companies which are not related. When they're 91. And he's 91. And now the, the Murdoch men have now been paid more than $1.5 billion by public companies they've controlled over the last 20 years. But they're being so responsible now that the total figure this year was only $46 million US million between Lachlan and Rupert. 
down from 66 million US dollars last year and the lowest in 10 years. So they should take a, a lesson from James Packer and live on the dividends. Correct. And the appreciating share price. The Packers never once took a dollar in salary yep. in their decades of running public companies and the Murdochs have taken $1.5 billion, which is more than any other public company people I'm aware of. And they control the company through a gerrymander and they vote on their own remuneration report every year when that would be illegal in Australia. Apart from that, they're a lovely family. <laughs> Shall we do some questions? Um, yes. Um. James. On the last episode, Alan and James seem to agree that unemployment must increase to control inflation. I suppose this is the mainstream macroeconomic argument based on the Phillips curve. But haven't central bank inflation forecasts been woefully inaccurate for the past couple of decades? My question is, what are some of the other more creative mechanisms that can be used to control inflation in an Australian context? Well, firstly... OPEC shouldn't be cutting daily production by 2 million barrels a day, which is what they've announced overnight. So that's one little thing. You'd break up OPEC as a, as a starter on uh, infecting inflation. But what else well, would you do creatively? Unfortunately, we don't have a global government that can break up OPEC, so you can forget that one. Yes. Um, uh, the only other way to control inflation, as opposed to bringing about a recession, is to have price controls. Mm government price controls, which no government really wants to do, well, the apart Brits from are, the Brits autocracies. Doing, the Brits are doing it with, um, uh, with power at the moment. They're, so they're subsidising households, and that's what caused that run on the pound, basically, because it was such a massive amount of uh, subsidy. Well, and the tax cuts they announced. But that, you see, I disagree with you. I read your column the other week, Alan, saying just because the, the, the POMs have given up their tax cut, maybe the you know, Chalmers should give up stage three tax cuts. I mean, that POMI tax cut was worth two million pounds. I, I didn't say two that. Billion a year. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said that the tax cuts in Australia were announced in two, 2018 in the context of a forecast of surpluses thereafter, yes. forever. Yes. And in particular, a <clears throat> $16.6 billion surplus for 21-22, which uh, two years later, it was forecast to be a $112 billion yes, deficit, but right? what about And promise, now there are deficits forever. Promise delivery, so, Alan. If you go to an election <coughs> saying we're going to do this, why are all these journalists and people like you screaming at them now to break their promise when the budget's just improved by $50 billion on what it was meant to be? The POMs owe $4.1 trillion Aussie dollars in debt. We owe $1 trillion. They have a genuine fiscal crisis and they haven't got a commodities boom that can bail them out. So the POMs are stuffed and couldn't afford and had a run on the pound. We have a great balance sheet. We're in great shape. Only the, only the Americans are in better shape. We can afford these stage three tax cuts and we have a very high tax, personal income tax arrangement, as you would know. So let them keep their promises. Bracket creep will pay it back over time anyway. And let's all move on from this silly campaign from the left to try and get you know, so-called tax cuts for the rich remove when it's it's middle class um, who are primarily going to get the benefit of these uh, tax cuts. So Jed says... No, my, my turn. Oh, OK, jump in. I am. Elbows up. Hug them all. Elbows up. MMT says a government's ability to spend and print money is only limited by inflation. How is inflation measured in this concept? Does it include asset prices such as real estate and listed equity or just increasing the CPI? If it's just CPI then is printing money equitable? I don't know what that means, really. Um, uh, yes, we're talking about CPI inflation. Um, 
that is the case. But, uh, yeah, I mean, MMT says uh, says that if that's right, that the ability to spend and print money is limited by inflation. But also by the productive capacity of the economy. Which is another way of talking about inflation. Yeah, because yeah you can print inflation until, until occurs got, yeah. if the productive capacity of the economy is not sufficient to meet the demand, demand yes. created by the extra money, right? Yes, so, yes. Um, but, yeah, we're talking about CPI inflation. Yes. But I'd say MMT is also limited by a collapsing currency, as the Brits discovered last week. So you can, if you keep printing and your currency starts collapsing, you can't keep printing. Well, they weren't talking the about printing. They were talking about oh. – uh, in fact, the, 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 said the Bank of England's rescue involved printing money. Yes. Um, it wasn't. The government was going to borrow it, not print it. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, I, I think basically, you know – Printing money, you look at Daniel Andrews in Victoria, he's borrowing $30 billion this financial year when he only has $3.7 billion in debts falling due. So he's being massively reckless. And the only reason he's getting away with it, like, so the spread on Victorian bonds is now higher than New South Wales and Queensland and 60 basis points above the Feds. But he's getting away with it because of the implied guarantee from the Feds and the implied guarantee that they'll print their way out of trouble. And the POMs couldn't do it because there's no one standing behind them. It's just their stuffed balance sheet. And uh, so I do think that the, the run on the pound happened basically because they couldn't print their way out of trouble. Okay, Michael. Michael, I've got, I'm 35 and I have 250K in super. Over the past 12 months, it doesn't seem to have increased at all. Currently, I'm in medium growth. I'm guessing with the global uncertainty at the moment, I can't see a jump in the market like previous years. Should I be sticking with medium growth or switching to high growth for my super? Keep up the good work with the podcast. P.S. What is your coffee of choice? My guess is Alan's on cappuccino, Stephen's on latte with the extra shop, and James having a flat white. Well, let's deal with the coffee first. Alan, what's your coffee fix? Well, I'm the extra shot latte. Oh, well, Not he, you. He, he was right, but what are you? wrong with this person? I'm just flat white, but I'm, I'm a 7-Eleven man, so I'm outraged that 7-Elevens just increased my $2 coffee to $3 after five years of $1, $2 and $3. Now they've jacked up the price and introduced fancy new cups. Fancy new cups? So when I go there at five in the morning because nothing else is open, I've now got to pay $3, not $2 for my flat white with James, two sugars. <coughs> James is a hot chocolate man. Oh, Okay. Not even coffees. No, no, no. doesn't have coffee. Yes, hot chocolate. Okay. Now, on the substantive question from Michael, um, if he's only thirty-five, he probably should be in high growth, shouldn't he? Rather than yeah, of course. Growth. I mean, that's just yeah. a, that's a standard answer to this sort of thing. I mean, young people, people in their thirties, should be on high growth because you don't have to worry about market volatility over the uh, over the short term. You're just in for the long and term. I, and I did look up the historical returns from average median growth. And yes, it did go backwards 3.3% last year on average. But the year before that, it was up 18%, which was the best since 96, 97, when it was 19%. So Michael, don't be too impatient. Take a two-year view. You've made 15% in two years in median growth. That's not too bad. But maybe switch your room into high growth. And now's a good time to switch because equity prices are relatively cheap. Yeah. Elmer says, from a philosophical perspective and an environmental perspective, my family and I have held onto a property in the Darling Scarp, Western Australia, virgin bush, they used to call it, 40 hectares of, hectares of forest. I talked to Canberra a couple of years ago about carbon credits and they told me, they told me no go. I had to plant trees to get the carbon credit or to sell them. Now, what do you and Stephen think about the future of Australia's bush and carbon credits? Well, uh, Alma, 
um, carbon credits uh, are only available and should be only available for changes in the amount of bush. That is to say, more trees being planted or uh, trees not being cleared that were going to be cleared. So if Elmer wants to monetize his 40 hectares of virgin or bush... Her, I would suggest. He should... Uh, her. her. Yes. They should put a planning permit into the local council saying we want to clear this and run a few cattle and then go to the government federally and say we're about to clear this unless you start paying us not to yeah. and give us some And cattle. the government will apparently pay them not to. Yeah. Or as they long can... as they were genuinely going to clear it. Yeah, or they can sell it to someone who wants the credits. I mean, I think that the getting credits for not clearing land is a bit dodgy, really, because you know. But it's going to force half the time they were going to clear it anyway. Well, but this, but Elmer is actually doing the right thing, and it's got the carrying cost of all the land tax and everything else. I mean, I think it's bizarre that Elmer's got privately owned forest to start with. I mean, this should be public land. He should sell it back to the state government or federal park or something, or the local council. Um, and if someone has got genuinely beautiful private forests, then surely we can find a system to pay them a little bit for uh, not clearing it, you know, rather than just saying you've got to threaten to clear it before we'll pay you not to. I don't That's think we should pay system. them. I don't think Print we should a bit pay of them money to and not pay them. We shouldn't pay them to not clear land that they were never going to clear. Really? Come on. Oh, okay. All right. You're not very generous, Alan. Where's your Whitlam spirit, you know? Splash cash everywhere. Well, everyone's going to go out and buy bushland and then get well, then no, stick just, their hand just, out. Just people who are patiently looking after <laughs> private forests, give them a bit of cash for the fact that they're helping reduce carbon and going to get us to net zero. No, but they're not helping to reduce carbon if they just sit on existing bushland. Well, but it is, it is mitigating carbon, and you're saying that, that they should... They should sell it to someone who's going to claim it. I mean, if it's claimable land, it's claimable land. It doesn't matter what the status of the owner is, surely. New owner, old owner, just... No, but it's, as I say, it's all about changes to it. Yeah, not but it, it, should, it should kick in at a certain level. So you don't do with everyone's backyard, four trees in the backyard. But once you've got 30 hectares, then you can claim for a no-change fee. So this is good, no change, we'll pay you this amount now each Now, that's year. a good idea. I've got four trees in my backyard. Yeah, well, you I'll, I'll, I'll get a permit for chopping them down... Yeah, and, and then, then get paid not four to. Cents a year. Yeah, you, you that'll be great. Well. Very well. I'll now, Martin that. says Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moran, when writing about bonds in this week's Eureka report, said, quote, While I like low cost ETFs to invest in bonds and the yields have been steadily increasing, I think it's worth looking at investing directly into the sector if you can. How can a retail investor find out about upcoming bond issuances and what sort of minimum accounts might we need to invest? Well, this is actually one of the great flaws of the Australian investment scene is it's not easy to invest in retail bonds. And this actually came up at the ASX AGM a couple of weeks ago where a retail shareholder, Phil Galvin, asked the obvious question, we've got a trillion dollars of government bonds. It's all nicely listed on the ASX, but there's no liquidity. Your market makers are a million either side. The spreads are anywhere from 50 to 80 points. It's not working well as a market, said Phil. And the CEO, Helen Loftus, admitted, yes, we do need to improve bond trading. It's not a very good system. There's been recommendations from Parliament that haven't been implemented. We need to get it done. And I think, frankly, the lack of franking credits is the number one reason why there's never been a proper functioning retail bond market in Australia, unlike what they have in New Zealand. Of course, that is undoubtedly true. Um, listen, we're, we're running out of time, so I'll have to whiz through uh, Peter. we've got left. Peter says, two-part question for Stephen on... I can just answer that straight off the way. So how do you appoint... 
ASA as your proxy and can you do it permanently, says Peter. And? And the you? answer is, yes, you can appoint the ASA for a single meeting and yes, you can do as, a, as an open proxy where you don't direct the votes, you just appoint ASA and don't fill in any of the boxes and ASA will, will vote the undirected proxy. ASA the being the Australian Shareholders Australian Association. Association. And you can also appoint ASA as your permanent proxy, which is called a standing proxy. If you go to their website, they have a good list of which companies are managed by which share registries. So you can just send one letter to ComputerShare and say, please appoint ASA as my permanent proxy for these 15 companies that you look after, and they will get that done. And that will remain in place until they either change share registry provider, which is very annoying because they all get thrown out when they do a tender and move to a different share registry. But that's a good way, an efficient way, rather than sending off your form every time appointing ASA. Because ASA is still getting $5 billion a year worth of undirected proxies from tens of thousands of shareholders. So it's a good good system and I'd encourage more people to do it. Uh, ben wants to know whether... Uh, the same rule applies to SMSFs as applies to big super funds, which is the um, marking to market at the end of the financial year, which big super funds do. Does, do SMSFs have to do that? The answer is no. No. And the big super funds do it because it's unit pricing and you have to allocate the loss, the, the not crystallised loss, but the paper loss, the mark to market loss each year for people exiting and entering the fund. You've got to have fair and accurate unit pricing. I'm surprised it's only done at the end of the year. Roger wants to know about fees, super fund fees, um, and wants to know if they should be forced to um, update members on all fees paid mm. or provide a sliding scale of fees based on the balance. Um, I'm surprised that the, 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 the general admin fee is quite public and out there, yeah. but the, the, the management fees within the different options, growth, you know, is not as easy to find says Roger, you know, and some growth funds are charging 0.8% of total funds, hmm. which is a lot of money if you've got a million or two in there. Yeah. So I agree, it should be a sliding scale. The bigger your balance, the smaller the percentage fee. Um, and all fees should be up front in your face rather than hiding it. And Celine says, um, uh, is the ETF management fee of 0.1% tax deductible? Well, she's why is why is it tax deductible when the management fee for managed funds is not? I think it, I think management fee for managed funds is. Yeah, I'd say both would be. Um, and also, she wants to know if ETFs can go bankrupt. The answer is no. No, the sponsor can go bankrupt, but not the actual ETF. All that would happen if an ETF is badly performing is they liquidate the assets yeah. and give the cash back. So you need There's to no bankruptcy process for an ETF. So Celine, you need to distinguish between the fund itself and the company that runs the fund. Yes. Which can go bankrupt if it borrows too much money and can't repay the loans. Correct. Um, but, but most ETFs, ETFs are not, not left. They don't borrow. They don't, well, they don't borrow. They're, they're, they're physical assets. And, um, yeah, there's no such thing as a bankruptcy trustee. It's just an embarrassed fund manager who says, sorry, folks, we've blown up uh, 80% of your money. But that's not bankruptcy. That's just shocking capital destruction. Mm. So um, before we finish, a bit of a boast. We have hit uh, half a million downloads this week, Stephen. Oh, well done. Cafe. So well um, done. there we are. That's fantastic. I, I get lots of feedback. In fact, I had a, a, a bloke come up to me at the AFIC AGM this week. So I love your podcast. And can you tell me why EML is such a dud stock as one of your questions this week? So... The answer is that anyone in the pay, buy now, pay later or payment space has been an absolute shocker. So avoid but e EML, EML is not, like e EML play. isn't a buy now, pay later. They, well, just, they just run payments. Yeah, anyone in payments has basically been a shocker. 
Zip. Yeah, what is that? Tyro. You can't take on the banks. It's too hard. Yeah. So. Uh, no, that's right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. Uh, I'll be back next week with James Thompson of uh, the Financial Review. So send in your questions and we'll answer that by uh, then. Uh, email themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report and a bunch of other things. And I'm Stephen Main, a Eureka contributor, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and city Manningham councillor. And I'll see you in a fortnight. And Alan, we'll see you next week. Sayonara. <laughs>